I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. The Meat Eater Podcast is brought to you by First Light. Whether you're checking trail cams, hanging deer stands, or scouting for elk, First Light has performance apparel to support every hunter in every environment. Check it out at firstlight.com. F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E.com. Hey, guys. It's uh, Steve, and I have such an important message that it's so important to fill the engineer advised me on how to hold my phone to get the best quality where it's about six inches from my mouth at an angle so it doesn't go pop, pop, pop when you talk. That's how important this message is. The Auction House of Oddities, our meat eater Auction House of Oddities is up live and running right now. Probably the most impressive slate of auction items to ever be compiled in the history of Western civilization. You can go right now and bid on a hunt at the Dern family farm with Bubbly Doug Dern himself. It's the winner's choice. You do a buck hunt for one or a deer hunt for one, opening day of rifle season. So opening weekend of rifle for one. Or three people do a turkey hunt on Doug's place. Hanging out with Doug, cruising around with Doug. We have a custom log trapper's cabin from Naughty Log Homes. Okay? So this is a totally built trapper's cabin that you can have get shipped out and you get assembled where you want it. Okay. We have a art commission, an original art commission of your choosing. Go on Instagram and go to at Jamie, J-A-M-I-E underscore wild art. Okay. Go look at her work. You can get an art commission from her. We have a signed arrow chunk of an aluminum arrow signed by Ted Nugent. 
1991 from a whiplash bash, and we have what in the art world they call the provenance. We have how this arrow flowed through ownership to get into your hands. Says Ted Nugent, 91, on an aluminum arrow shaft. Great story to go with that. Everybody knows our beloved Seth Morris. Used to go by the flip-flop flesher. His wife is a professional artist. She has a gallery. I mean, she, she makes her living with art. We have original artwork from her. Kelsey Morris, original artwork. We have my Weatherby Mark V used in many Meat Eater episodes. Forthcoming episode where I shoot a pretty stomper mule deer in Idaho. I killed a bull with it on a Meat Eater episode. A lot of Meat Eater episodes. A left-handed Weatherby Mark V and 300 Win Mag. That exact rifle. We have a Carolina Custom Rifle that I use in a bunch more Meat Eater episodes, including the famous Moose Charge episode. That rifle is available for auction. And there is a dinner for four at my house. So the winning bidder and three guests will, at a time that we pick together, will come to my house to be wined and dined for auction. Doug Duran was bragging up how his auction item was kicking my dinner's ass. But I have to point out right now that it's probably humiliating to Doug the degree to which my dinner is kicking his farm's ass. So you better go help old uh, Bubbly out before he gets sad. You got to go to TheMeatEater.com and find, you know, there's all kinds of links and stuff. Auction House of Oddities. Or go to at Stephen Ranella on Instagram and we will put the Auction House of Oddities link in my bio. You'll find it. Thank you, everybody. Now, back to regular programming. All right, everybody, we're here with Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan. And when I say Ken Burns, I mean that Ken Burns. His first feature film came out in 1981 about the Brooklyn Bridge. Since then, he has made over three dozen films. Now, in a recent conversation, you mentioned to me 30 films. It's, but you said about, and I was surprised that someone would say about. Well, I never count them in a in that weird sort of way. I know how many kids I have, but I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. Um, I, I PBS says forty now, oh. and it's gonna pass that. And but the the, the funny Grinch thing, Schneider says three dozen. Listen, the Over. Um, the um, the the most important thing is that one could be a one hour film, uh-huh. and one could be a ten part. 18, 19 hour film. This still counts as one. So whatever it is, it's a lot of hours. Yeah. And since, and, but, but you agree, you have certitude that your first film was Brooklyn Bridge in 1981. I, actually, uh, PBS and um, an app that we have called Unum, which is sort of curating the evergreen themes that are in our film. Um, actually not an app. It's a website, Unum. Uh, as in E Pluribus Unum, has released the film I made in college uh, as my senior thesis at Hampshire College about Old Sturbridge Village, kind of the colonial Williamsburg of New England, which is called Working in Rural New England, and it's 1790 to 1840 kind of vibe to it. And the la- it's all live stuff, but the last shot is a pan across a painting. Oops. Oh, <laughs> It's the birth. It's the genesis moment. Yeah. Of, the, of the effect. So there's, four, there's 41 films. Uh Major works on the Civil War, called the Civil War, and and uh, I, I want to tell you, I hadn't told you this before, you've, you've heard this hundreds of times from thousands of people, um, that overtook, like, that consumed our family life, that film. 
even even to where like my parents bought the CD, would play the music in the house. My it, children like you. Yeah, it was, all four of them. <laughs> it was just like a, a it, it consumed people in a way, and it was it created at that time. You know, now things are so diffuse and dispersed, but it was like one of those recognizes one of those elements of sort of like a shared. It was unifying. Like a shared national experience, you know? It's pretty interesting that something that tore us in two became something that unified us in a a way. I think we thought we knew about the Civil War Uh and had kind of superficial views about it or ideas or even mythologies that were incorrect. And this was sort of trying to tell a really deep, complicated story. And I think people wanted to know. It's the most important event in American history. Mm -hmm in American history. Um, and so everything that we were led up to it and everything that we've become has issued from it. So I think there was a curiosity, no matter what idiot was making the film, that people would be drawn to where we came from. And the simplest thing I can say is that before the Civil War, when speaking about our country, we said the United States are plural, which is grammatically correct. Mm. After the war, we said the United States is, hmm. and we still to this day, which is wrong, these group of people is nice, is is ungrammatical. So what it did is take us people, when, when Lee was offered the head of the Union Army and turned it down, he said, I cannot raise my sword against my country, by which he meant Virginia. After hmm. that, when you said your country, you meant the United States of yeah. America. And so that's just one hell of a good story. And and basically the whole 11 and a half, 12 hours is how an R became an is. Mm-hmm. Didn't solve a lot of things about race. Didn't solve a lot of other things. But it, it sure, at least for a while, made us an is. Yeah. Uh, so also World War II, a major work on World War II called The War, The Vietnam War, also The Dust Bowl, country music, the national parks, the West, jazz, and then projects centered around pivotal American figures, um, including Thomas Jefferson, Mark Twain, Jackie Robinson. And currently working on, and this is where there's a little bit of surprise in here, working on a, uh, working on a film about LBJ, working on a film about the American Revolution, which I want to ask you about. But Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah. So That's not America. So when Dayton how'd and I... That, how'd that happen? So when I was thinking about doing um, Benjamin Franklin. Mm-hmm. I had dinner one night with uh, one of his biographers, uh, um, Walter, Isaacson. Walter Isaacson, who's a dear friend. Uh, maybe no longer. He heard my hesitation. Um, and Walter and I were having dinner in Washington, D.C., and all of a sudden he started to try to sell me a twofer. He said, you know, you know, he's uh, this great scientist and artist, a political artist and writer. You know, he's argued, he's, I think, undeniably the greatest American writer of the 18th century. And he's funny and all of this. But, you know, and Walter had done another uh, biography on Leonardo. And he said, same thing. You've got this guy who's this great scientist, but also this great artist. And, you know, you should do it. I said, look, I don't do Amer- non-American topics. Mm-hmm. I only do American topics. But I walked out and was talking to, to one, of, one of the producing teams that produced the Central Park Five and that Jackie Robinson biography that you mentioned and the Muhammad Ali thing. And I said, Leonardo, they said, yes, let's do it. So I thought, why the hell not? You know, why be stuck 
Well, I'll you tell know, you why not. In my mid sixties, because it's 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 you're you're an American. Wait till you see, wait till you see. We're we're <laughs> oh. we're but we're halfway through editing, and it's just so exciting and riveting. And and Sarah, uh, my oldest daughter, who's that partner, and her husband David McMahon, who is the other partner, have just returned from a year with two of my four grandchildren in Florence, and what we've got is just an amazing stuff. And let's remember, it's Florentine films. So we were meant no, I can see that. eventually yeah. to get to somebody in in Florence, right? So, well, I think there's gonna be there's gonna be a lot of uh, you're gonna have to explain that probably a whole bunch. The of biggest times. thing is the is the American Revolution that's just consuming almost all of my bandwidth. Yeah, you mentioned to me um, just in passing, and of course we need to get to what we're here to talk about, which is your your new film. The American Buffalo, but you mentioned to me something. I wish I, I wish I could remember more precisely. You said you're working on the American Revolution, and you mentioned I think Concord, and and, and you said, and it's not what people think, or you, you know what is the because I guess it's not helpful because I can't really remember what exactly you said, but you 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 intimated that there's a that there, that there's a element that has become misunderstood about the american revolution perhaps well like the civil war it's less misunderstood it's just not understood okay. and that's the work that we try to do is a pretty deep dive that helps to sort of dissolve the you know the the arteries that are clogged with the false stories mm -hmm. that it wasn't the civil war wasn't about slavery it was about slavery there's no mention of states rights or nullification or interposition in the south carolina declaration of secession it mentions slavery an awful lot. That's what it's about. The Ku Klux Klan are not the heroes of the post-Civil War era. That's what Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind suggests. So we begin to inherit a lot of stuff, and we think that the people who fought against the British were sturdy New England uh, farmers and Virginia you know, farmers, and they left their work and their job, the Minuteman idea. Mm -hmm. And we only know Lexington and Concord. We kind of know Washington crossing the Delaware for Trenton at Christmas Day. People think it's Christmas Eve, and then that's it. And they don't know that the, ba the biggest battle of the entire thing is the Battle of Long Island or Brooklyn, mm -hmm. where Washington makes classic mistakes. Another big mistake is Brandywine, the same mistake. Germantown, all of these stuff, Saratoga, in which Washington's not involved, is a great victory. So we want to go through the military history and get you to know. We want you to know what Guilford Courthouse was about in South Carolina, or Cowpens, or Camden, all in South Carolina. We want you to know about Kings Mountain and Yorktown and the places where it's fought. It's like a three-part opera, you know, in New England, central states, and then South America. But it's also a much more complicated picture. It isn't just 55 white guys in Philadelphia thinking great thoughts. Mm -hmm. Right, a lot of these guys are slave owners. A lot of them are are trying to get Indian land. A lot of this is about getting Indian land, and so it's you're now dealing with slavery, freed slaves, runaway slaves. British are offering freedom if you belong to a rebel. If you belong to somebody who's loyalist, forget it. You're still a slave, right? So there's unbelievably complicated dynamics. Women are involved from the very beginning, and any army is traveling the American army particularly, but also the British and Hessian have wives and children and people that are there involved in it. And you've got French and you've got German and you've got British people. Some of the British people are pro-American. Some are obviously vociferously not. There's a Canadian dimension. There's loyalists among us at any given table. You might have 20 
30% are favoring staying with the ground. A lot of people just remain neutral. So it is, our civil war is not a civil war. There's not huge civilian deaths except in Missouri and Kansas related to the issues of the civil war. You know, two people die in Gettysburg. That's not what happens in a civil war. It's a sectional war. It is north against south. The revolution is a bloody violent civil war that engages all Americans, mm. Native Americans. When you said about civil war, you mean that there were not a lot of non-combatant deaths. Pe right. Yeah. People people who don't didn't hair, uh, carry a rifle at that moment are tarred and feathered because they're a loyalist. I mean, uh, we just made a film on Franklin, and Franklin's own son, William, was the royal governor of uh, New Jersey, deposed, imprisoned, eventually released, presumed to go to, to England and get out of the thing. Instead, he starts a terrorist organization dedicated to murdering patriots because, by the way, there are lots of patriot organizations dedicated to murdering loyalists. And that means it's right within your own community. And it's, it's from New Hampshire down to Georgia. Georgia's more, more loyalist, at least, you know, in the beginning than, than, than say New Hampshire and the New England states are, particularly Massachusetts. But this changes. They start a Southern strategy uh, beginning with Savannah and then moving to Charleston because they presume that this loyalist population will help them pacify. That's a word from Vietnam. Pacify mm. the countryside never happens. And so they kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, maybe we should just go up to Virginia, which is the death knell of the British attempt to keep these rebellious colonists, none of whom really know much about the other. The Carolinas do, but everybody else is pretty much an independent vassal state. Plus, to the West, there's 40 or 50 other nations, right? Yeah, yeah. I it's, think we learned in um, doing Franklin, at least I, it, it was driven home to me, not just because Franklin and his son, but in this in the revolutionary wars a civil war also because there is no state there's probably no town in the 13 colonies None. that itself wasn't didn't have people on different sides oh i see yeah you know and 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 uh, i remember when we were working on the west and writing about bleeding kansas and missouri and that, at that time the wars the in bosnia and you know uh, what used to be hungary were going on with the bloody just murders of your your neighbors and i i thought well that is a civil war yeah you know in in the classic sense that people who are neighbors and um you know, collected together or you know in, in a location are fighting each other and this applies to everybody war. so the oldest functioning democracy in, on the continent is the Haudenosaunee, often referred to as the Iroquois Confederation, made mm -hmm. up of six, first five, and then six nations. And what the revolution does is it splits them. Some are thinking maybe we'll get a better deal with the, um, the Americans, uh, but most of them know that they should, they know the British from history and they're super worried correctly that the whole impulse of the colonists is to move westward and take their land. In fact, our whole series begins with, we know you know how valuable our lands are. We know you want to take them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because that's what this is about. And, and you're you referring land. to the, the, the reward system. Well, the where, like participants 
Well, you know, participants on the American side were often rewarded lands. That often, if yeah. you if you signed up for the duration, you got twenty bucks. If you got signed up for three years, you got ten bucks. But the twenty buck folks were also promised Indian land. But the revolution happens for really interesting reasons. One is when the British win the French and Indian War, which the rest of the world calls the Seven Years' War, they got a huge empire and they can't pay for it. They're bankrupt from the war. And so they see the settlers streaming, people, English, Irish, German settlers, streaming over the Appalachians into Indian territory. And the Indians are fighting back and saying, no, you can't take our land. So they do a demarcation line and say, you can't go over the Appalachians. They go, what? I have an opportunity to own land for the first time in a mm -hmm. thousand, fifteen hundred years in my family's history. What are you going to do that? And oh, by the way, we're so broke, we're going to begin to tax the least taxed people on earth, the American colonists. Mm -hmm. And so this is what it is. But there's always yeah. that pressure to move across the Appalachian and a great deal of the killing of the American Revolution takes place not just from Lexington and Concord and Boston down, you know, to here or up to Quebec or Tycoon to Roga. It's all there and we detail it to Yorktown, down to Charleston and Savannah and even into uh, Mobile. But it's in upstate New York with native people being killed and having their villages. These are not Plains Indians, nomadic people. These are people with cities and towns and farms and orchards having scorched earth policy, you know. Um, Washington was called by many of the, uh, the Iroquois Confederation tribes um, the, the town destroyer, and they hmm. referred to the revolution as the whirlwind. It also happened in the southeast, and it also happened in the Midwest, particularly with George Rogers Clark, who's just, he's out to... He's the Attila, the Hun of the story. I mean, he's out to just kill as many Indians as he can to destroy as many villages to make that area, which will later become the Northwest Territories, you know, suitable for uh, settling. So it's a super complicated story. And yet, it engages some of the most noble aspirations of humankind, mm -hmm. period. So that when someone came up to me and said our last film that was broadcast was called The U.S. and the Holocaust... I said, do you think after the birth of Christ, the most important event in world history is the Holocaust? I said, no, it's the birth of the United States. Mm. Well, that's great. Yeah. I can't wait to see that one. How long will that one be? That'll be 12 hours without oh, okay. a single photograph. Right? Yeah. That's the big challenge that we, we practiced in Franklin. <laughs> I don't mean to suggest that it was and easy. And Lewis and Clark. And Lewis and Clark, which is how you tell a story in which it's pre-photographic. No photographs, no newsreel. Yeah. So no combat footage. No combat footage. Whenever I travel and I give a speech, I said, if anybody's got a photograph from the revolution, please, here, I'll give you my address right <laughs> yeah, away. Yeah. Please send it in. But what happens is that necessity is a mother of invention. And so we begin to find new strategies like going out and filming yourself, gravestones and, and, and um, trees and atmospherics, what Emily Dickinson called the far theatricals of day, sunrises, sunsets, and, and try to find new ways to do it. And it's beginning to work. We're knock on wood, you know, we've been editing now for several months and, and have, um, you know, we're beginning to feel like whew, we can exhale a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I also want to do a better job of introducing, uh, Dayton Duncan after our, our preamble about the forthcoming revolutionary film, American Revolution. Um, Dayton Duncan has written and produced many films with Ken Burns, country music. You can help me fill in the list. Country music, Lewis and Clark, Mark Twain, The West, 
Dust, Dust Bowl. Bowl. Dust Bowl. National Parks. National Parks. Horatio's Drive. Horatio's Drive, about the first car trip across the United States in mm -hmm. 1903. The West. Uh, the West. Yeah. But also worked on Civil War, you know, lots of different projects. Yeah, I would, because we're friends, um, he, as I was writing books, Ken would read the books that I was working on in progress, and he'd ask me to sit in and look at films in progress, not as an expert on the topic, but it's just somebody who shares his passion for narrative storytelling. And I'd say, well, um, this is really working. And I was confused here. This is dragging here. I was, yep. you know, the, the, uh, do more of this and a little less of this and that kind of thing. So I, I fiddled around on the ones I didn't produce and, and write, but was dedicated, uh, and lucky to, uh, work with him on ones that were a particular, passion or interest to me how'd you guys meet yeah it's a good story is that is that through did you meet through dayton's books or no nope. i um i you know <laughs> when i decided to become a, a documentary filmmaker strike one on P <laughs> pbs strike two uh, in american history strike three you're out uh -huh. i moved from new york city to walpole new hampshire to the house i'm living in now to the bedroom i still sleep in 44 years ago. But before that, in order to survive, we would take day jobs from the BBC who didn't want to send a union crew from New York City all the way up and incur all these expenses. And we just said, we won't charge per diems. So we'll just get where you need to be in New England, which was, you know, waking up at 1 a.m. to go be ready to shoot at 6 a.m. to finish at midnight to drive another six hours. To get uh, on what kind of project? Like one day shoot. So one day the BBC was interviewing the governor of New Hampshire, who was active in sort of the adaptive reuse of some of the old abandoned mills, uh, the Amiskeag mills in Manchester, New Hampshire. And that governor uh, was named Hugh Gallen, and his chief of staff was Dayton Duncan. So the first time I met Dayton... Oh, really? Is when if we wanted to talk to Hugh Gallon, you had to go through me. <laughs> yeah, so, and he had a reputation already as kind of this t tough. So we did a shoot and we sort of noticed each other. And I think he thought, oh, this child is making a film. What is he doing? But it turned out all right. And then later we'd bump into each other at, um, at sort of political events in the state. It's a small state and intimate. And then when I was getting married, uh, I had I had crossed every T and dotted every I except the very important marriage license, and I needed to cut through red tape in about a day and a half. So I called my buddy. <laughs> Eventually, um, our our wives and then my children and his children became Dayton moved here, and so uh, we he he gave me one of the books he did give me was Out West, which is this magnificent story of Lewis and Clark, but it's also the story of his story engaging the Lewis and Clark trail. And I went to Dayton. I said, man, this is a really great film. We're not going to tell your story, but let's tell Lewis and Clark. Uh -huh. And so we had some stuff in the way, like the Civil War and baseball <laughs> and the West. But, you know, one of the most satisfying um, parts of my professional experience has been working with Dayton, particularly on Lewis and Clark, particularly out on the road in Montana driving from one town to another and looking and making jokes about, well, well, it looks like Winifred is way up right. there. And, uh, what, you know, Dayton would say, what do you, what are you going to get when we get into town? I said, well, I think I'll start with a cold vichyssoise soup <laughs> and then I'm going to move to a salad of, of endive with a vinaigrette dressing. And then I will have probably either the Chateaubriand or the Dover sole. 
And then I hope to follow it off with a, a beautiful creme brulee. And then he, there would be a beat and he'd say, what do you want on your cheeseburger? <laughs> and so we would go into town and we'd go to the cafe and we'd get a delicious cheeseburger. And then I'd repeat it the other way. I would, I would say to Dayton, well, you know, we're coming up on, where do you, what do you think we should uh, get? Uh, and he would elaborate thing. And then I would go, what do you want on your cheeseburger? Nope. So that's, it was, it was our routine. But in that time we got, we've, you know, Dayton had already known the West, but I fell in love with it. And, and he was the, the guide and we'd be drinking uh, I, Fresca. And yeah. Eating I think one of the Twizzlers. joys of my life and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I was with you uh, the first time that you were ever in South Dakota Yes. And North Dakota. Yes. And maybe Montana and as Montana. well. And Montana. Oh, wow. And the first time you ever saw any buffalo. The first time. Was when we were filming Yeah, that Lewis wasn't in Clark. a zoo. Yeah, yeah, right. I saw a buffalo when I was a little boy, and it's either Philadelphia or, or Baltimore. I don't remember what zoo. And I'd already been animated as a anthropologist's sons by native people and buffaloes and stuff like that. But I saw a buffalo. <sighs> At the ranch where years later, um, the... Uh, Dances with the Wolves was shot. Yeah. Oh, the ranch at north of Pier. Yeah, that was the Hauk Ranch at that time. I forget yeah. Triple U. I think was the name of uh -huh. the ranch. Uh, they had Man. one of the largest herds in America at the time. Um, and I had met the guy that the rancher when I was doing my book out west, and interviewed him. And um, but then so we filmed there. And uh, but I, that was what I was going to say. One of the joys of my life was on those moments with with Ken, even though, you know, we're uh, doing ridiculous hours to get up and shoot at dawn and then drive and find the place we're going to shoot next and go till sunset in the northern plains in the middle of the summer. So you're talking about sunrise at four o'clock and sunset at 10. Mm -hmm. um, but of just seeing his, it was important to me when we we're making that film of seeing his eyes so wide at the landscape, yeah, landscape. Encountering the landscape of uh, of the Great Plains, and it reminded me um, that we needed to make sure in our film that we somehow, because we can't show the faces of Lewis and Clark and the members of the Corps of Discovery, we were standing with them, looking at it, and using their quotes from their journals, but to make sure we got across the sense of wonder that they had. Because they, you know, they came from this part of the country up in New England and the East, where basically you have vertical views through mm -hmm. gaps and trees and stuff. And now you're in this horizontal world, and you're encountering animals that, as they would write in their journals, not known back in the United States. I mean, they're writing that when they're in Nebraska and South Dakota. They're yeah, talking about yeah. back in the states. You don't have these things that. Uh, barking dogs and piet shans and prairie dogs as john ordway called them and that's what they became and antelope and you know Pronga. jackrabbits and uh the uh and bison they knew about but um because they used to be in the east coast but um but not in those numbers and the astonishing numbers grizzly bears living on the plains mm -hmm. Elk, elk on the plains was a plains animal at one time and just this wonderland of landscape and wildlife that they encountered as the first u.s citizens to ever go that far west and as the first u.s citizens white mm 
citizens to see in that um you know, paradise, wonderland. Of, uh, wonderland of wildlife and uh, landscape. And for me, that's the marker, you know. That was what the West was after the United States had claimed it through mm-hmm. the Louisiana Purchase but didn't control it. But it was a view of, of a land and a people and animals that in the next 80 years would be irrevocably changed. Um, and so they were the first in one respect and they were the last in Mm. another respect to, to encounter that, um, place that had been evolving for 10,000 years before the United States as officially was entering into it. And my book out West was about the difference between what they saw and what I saw and to tell the history of the West in between those two. Yeah. What happened between those markers? They saw, they saw buffalo everywhere it'd be it'd be like going to kenya right and not seeing all the things you can see in kenya anymore right Uh that there's a kind of silence and a kind of monoculture now to the prairies when it was as they say our serengeti and that's i i think i think we tried i think we accomplished in lewis and clark and i think again in the buffalo film to get a sense of just how filled the plains were with species of both both flora as well as fauna and how what it would be like to imagine or now reimagine the possibilities that there were elk there were grizzlies there were wolves and so now and and, and a variety of plant life that is just a spectacular eden as 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 Dayton says as as people talked about it you know, this was this was our new, the new territory we were acquiring, and it was just full. And then, very shortly afterwards, it's not full. Mm-hmm. The I mean, sounds have disappeared. The, yeah, Lewis the, and Clark, they say, we just saw them. Uh, and just talking about buffalo, um, they saw them everywhere once they reached what's now South Dakota, and the plains that I crossed in the early '80s, retracing their route, it was a wildlife desert now. Uh, and to find, to see buffalo out on a range took a lot of work. I mean, yeah. I had to, I, as a reporter, had to, you know, dig down to find out where can I go see some, you know, and talk and learn a little bit about them. And uh, so South Dakota and then my uh, um, friend um, became my friend through that Gerard Baker, who's in our um, in our. Lewis and Clark film and also in our national parks film and also, also in the West film. in the West <laughs> film and, and also in this Buffalo film, who's a Mandan Hidatsa, the tribes that sheltered Lewis and Clark in the winter of 1804, 1805. Um, I got Dakota. to know him very well, but uh, at one point he became the district ranger of Theodore Roosevelt National Park, the North unit. And one of his jobs was sort of managing their Buffalo herd. So um, through him, I got not only introduced, you know, personally to uh, to Buffalo, but more importantly, and I, we hope that our film gets this across, um, the importance that they had both for sustenance, physical sustenance, but also for spiritual sustenance for uh, for Native people who had been living with them for ten thousand years. And he really got that across to me um, 
and that's what another thing we hope in this film that we make perfectly clear. You, you know, you can say it, oh, they've been living them for 10,000 years and everything, and then they were gone, and that was really devastating. It, that just doesn't yeah. touch it, mm -hmm. you know, about how how intricate, 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 uh, uh, whatever, how closely, <laughs> thank you, they were, their lives were intertwined and the meaning that they had for people beyond, you know, the food or the hides or the bones that they would use for different, yeah. different things. It was part of existence and it was part of a web of, of being, um, that uh, is, you can you can talk about it, but having people like Gerard and other people that we interviewed in our film describe him because they're talking about their people whose bones are out there too. Yeah, uh, talking about how deep it was, and therefore how devastating it was, and therefore how important it is now to try to restore some more buffalo to reservations to the land their own ancestral lands the bu buffaloes and the ancestral lands that are left at least on reservations for tribes to revive that sacred connection that they had and also to provide them with food sovereignty as well um it's been broken so, for you know five mm, six generations and yeah. that's a big break because if you think about it, it's 600 generations of experience up to that point. And then all of a sudden, you know, we have in filmmaking a phrase called POV, which means point of view. And we tend to realize that we are susceptible to one POV. And while it might be generous enough to encompass other points of view, it does so in the kind of sometimes patronizing kind of noblesse oblige way well yes there are other views of this but you really in this in the case of this question have to yield to those people who have 600 you know generations of experience and not just four or five or six generations of experience with regard to this animal and i think for us the ability later in our professional lives to be able to seed to views not in just some sort of kind, uh, liberal, bleeding heart way, but in a real full, we just give it over and challenge lots of things, presumptions about ownership of land, mm -hmm. presumptions about superiority as a species, um, presumptions about how you act in concert with this. Because if you're just killing a buffalo and taking the tongue, which is the first thing, you can imagine what the effect is on a culture that is using everything, as Dayton is suggesting, from the tail to the snout. And as Gerard says in our film, and also the snort, because the buffalo sounds get worked into rituals. So it isn't just using every last thing. And Dayton wrote a beautiful thing of, you know, from the moment you're born into into a warm buffalo blanket and the time you die in a shroud of buffalo skin all the ways in which the buffalo is used from tail to snout and then having as dayton has said so well this spiritual dimension and and so we need to actually look at the story that takes place from a variety of povs and actually seed something even as filmmakers tightly in control of the narrative is that 
we not we may not always be right or see it in a way and how can we in developing this narrative see things from what is in many cases with regard to say ownership of the land or kinship with other species entirely different point of view Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in wisconsin now last year at youth turkey season it rained and snowed the whole time this year at youth turkey season it was in the 70s and even up to 80 so me and my kids are pouring it to it and after a while i realized i didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day well that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you encourage you to get hydrated doesn't matter outdoor events turkey hunting playing sports beach days mountain adventures summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments with three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick it's clear why liquid iv is the number one powdered hydration brand in america tear pour live more One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacovas is your stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. And Tacovas has first wear comfort, meaning you put them on, they feel great. Little or no break in, period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, their direct consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket just ask my buddy chili who's been slipping around in his tacova boots talking about how great he feels in them he loves them yeah steve they're very comfortable they're very fashionable and i enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere i go around bozeman stop by your local tacova store have a complimentary drink and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores have leather custom branding 
to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today. The kinship question, I think, is handled really well in the film. And, and again, the, 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 the film releases in October? Yes. Yeah, called The American Buffalo. Um, I think October it 16th and 17th. October 16th and 17th. Yes. A, a, fil- a thing that it does very convincingly, um, and I'd like read references of it and pondered it before, but you, you guys capture it really well, well, is this idea of um, between the plains tribes and the animals that there's a, in, in, in a spiritual dimension and otherwise, there's like this, this real equal footing. Meaning it was even that at one, in, in some belief systems, it was even at once upon a time, um, the buffalo were dominant over humans. But through various circumstances, the humans became dominant over buffalo. But if humans um, did sort of moral infractions against the animals, they the animals did. would deprive themselves. And you had to... Uh, to in in writing about the film later, I, I'm, I wrote a thing for Outside Magazine about the film. And writing about it, it'd be that bad hunting could be more than bad luck. Like bad hunting could could be a a sign of some moral transgression. That's right. Meaning you needed to make things right. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like an Eastern to, religious karma idea. Yeah, right. That 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 there was you had a kind of responsibility. There's a reciprocity and inequality between all of creation and you needed to be in balance with that. And this is not just every tribe. It's specific tribes have specific myths about the creation and when man mm-hmm. became dominant. But that dominance required a kind of humility in the face of what the buffalo then provided. And pre-horse, this is going to be a very big deal. This is the survival of your band, your tribe, uh, might be on the success of one hunt that would provide you with enough meat for a month if you got two buffalo. And if you didn't, what were you doing? If they were not there, had had you done something wrong? And it was it's really a, a wonderful question. And it's 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 different from the steamroller effect. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's about respect. Mm-hmm. I mean, the 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 cosmology is uh, so different. A uh, world. Uh, view of human beings and their relationship to the natural world than what was brought to the Americas in 1492 and following, which was we're all part of this web and we're all in essence on an equal basis, everything. And it all comes from the sun and that great unknown that, uh, that the Lakotas would call the Wakantanka, the you know, the great incomprehensibility. Um, they understood that the sun was the source of, of all life and the represent the biggest representation of the sun was the buffalo. The buffalo ate the grass that the sun made possible and then turned that into meat that they then relied upon for their, you know, for their food, but also everybody part for for something else and that the that relationship was one in which a number of the people we interviewed say in our film the buffalo give themselves to us that's Mm -hmm. part of how this works it came dancing and if yeah yeah. and if 
if we don't, uh, through our ceremonies and our practices, respect that, then they might withhold that, and they would go back to where they came from. A lot of times in sacred places to them, the Wichita Mountains in Oklahoma, to the Black Hills in the Northern Plains for the Lakota and, and Cheyenne, they might go go back there. And then special ceremonies and maybe the intervention of a culture hero were required to convince them, okay, we've learned our lesson. We're, you know, we'll, we'll start a fresh year, we'll reset, and we'll, we promise, you know, that we won't, we'll, we'll try our best not to do whatever that violation was that caused you to disappear. And to a certain extent in our film, uh, remarkably, when the first national preserve for bison back on the plains is created in the early 1900s uh, through Theodore Roosevelt, it was in the Wichita Mountains, mm-hmm. where according to the Kiowas, they would go. They had first emerged, and is where they would go when they hadn't been respected. And according to a legend told by a woman named Old Lady Horse, who's uh, whose words we use in the in the film, she describes a girl watching the last buffalo herd after the buffalo had been slaughtered by the hide hunters, disappearing that into what's called now Mount Scott in the Wichita Mountains and said it opened up and inside was a world of fresh beauty and the rivers ran clear and the grass was green and they that's where they went. And when they came back for the Kiowas and um, Comanches, it was at the Wichita Mountains where the preserve was founded. That, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, believe me, wasn't doing it because he knew the legend of that old lady horse had told. It was a, just a good place. The federal government had taken some of the land from the Comanche Reservation during allotment, and it made sense um, to do it. But there were people there, Quanta Parker and others, who understood that deeper thing and were... And who had interacted with the animals as young... As, as young As people. children, and all yeah, of a sudden here they are back. There were still some people alive that, that remembered remember. the time yeah. when they covered the plains, and they were also their children who hadn't seen a buffalo. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how dramatic that And the startling irony is that the buffalo that are going to seed the Wichita Mountains refuge... Come from the Bronx. Come from the Bronx <laughs> Zoo, and they're loaded on this, you know, in the busiest city, the biggest city in the Western Hemisphere. Uh-huh. They're going to be yeah. loaded on these boxcars and make the reverse trip out to their, you know, as we said, new old home mm-hmm. yeah. and that i think is part yeah. of trying to understand the undertow of this story look we have all, a very good interview in that in our film yeah was, that helps what's to his describe name? this steve Ranella. somebody yeah oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. From yeah the, helps from the, us helps us get that <laughs> from the beginning rather, rather, yeah. irony and, rather promising and, middle-aged man yeah. so so the the thing to remember <laughs> is that um human nature never changes uh-huh. it's the same for all right villains and heroes and all of that stuff that we superficially apply. So there 
are lots of ways of thinking and lots of ways of behaving and whatever, but you know, native peoples are warring with one another and committing atrocities. But I think for us to be able to look and see that many of our own ancestors participated in a kind of thoughtless, which is maybe the most charitable thing you could say, thoughtless slaughter that reached a kind of industrial pitch in the last half of the 19th century that took an animal that numbered in perhaps 30 million at the beginning of the 18th century down to basically nobody could find one. Beginning of the 1800s. The beginning, beginning of the, of the 19th century. Yeah, yeah, beginning of the 19th century. There are at least 30 million there by, by the end of the 1880s. You can't find one outside of a zoo or private collections. There's some in Yellowstone, they're under tremendous threats from poachers and things like that. So how did this happen? And then why are we sitting here today not so worried about the buffalo? Yeah. You know? Well, I, I want to touch on that, and I want to touch on the slaughter, but I want to back up a little bit to ask, uh, to ask an earlier question. You guys, um, in your work, you touch on... Uh, you touch on the buffalo in the Dust Bowl early on and establishing, yeah. you know, the the comeuppance for tilling the Great Plains, and um, and you have this thin, you know, layer of grass that has a root structure that goes buffalo grass, yeah, five feet yep. subsurface, right, yep. and has this tiny reflection on the surface, yeah, and. and that ecosystem, and you touch on the animal there. You touch on the animal in Lewis and Clark. In the, the West, West, of course. The national parks. Um, but at what point, um, in the back of your heads, in the front of your heads, whatever, at what point did you think, what, let's just go at some point, let's just tackle the animal We've been talking in about its that. own freestanding project. We've been talking about that for more than three decades. Okay. We found a proposal from the mid '90s that was like really fully developed, and we really, you know, we're about to do it. And Who generated the proposal? Dayton, Dayton, okay. we were all, but we talked about yeah. it from the early '90s. Yeah. You know, about yeah. this would be a great film in and of itself. And what's so good is that this, you know, and this happens. Some projects, you know, you say this country music, boom, you're suddenly in it. Um, other stuff, same same way, and others, you know, sit. Oh, there I mean, you mean the process from from from, from conception from to the first articulation of it, you know, front of mind, back of mind. So the you say something, and all of a sudden you're racing towards it, and you're oh. working. May take, Country music was still, like that. Yeah, cut was like that. And national parks, national parks, like that. Many of the project of Vietnam, like that. You know, we knew we were going to do it. Um, you know, it took us a long time to do the war because after the Civil War, we said no more wars, and then we had to decide that we were going to jump into that. But what was so great is that a lot of things have over the years kept kind of on the back burner or have just been there. Of course, the Buffalo, it falls off lists. It comes back onto lists. You make a 10 year plan and it's not there, but then maybe there's a hole and it comes. And I'm so happy that we waited these decades to do this. Cause I don't think, we had that ability to do what I was trying to describe earlier about respecting without patronizing, mm -hmm. without some sort of inherent paternalism, other points of view, just to literally permit them to obtain. Doesn't fit with your belief system? Okay, but that's the way the whole world works well, across thousands of cultures and, and eons of time. And so 
to be able to have this little m moment of daylight that we could say, okay, so after Franklin, we should be doing this. And this particular team with Dayton and with Julie and, 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 and said, so we'll, 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 we'll fit the Buffalo in here. It was just the right time. And it feels so fortuitous in the same way that we celebrate country music for the impulse of just saying, I mean, a friend suggested it to me in Dallas. I was kind of nervous because Dayton and I were thinking about something else. I went back to Dayton. We don't have to forget that idea, but country. And he's like, we forgot that idea. We're like, <laughs> we still, we don't remember what it is anymore. And so, and suddenly we were just pressing forward on that. And that's okay. You mm -hmm. know, some things, some things are developed over time. And this one, like a fine wine, just needed that age. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think by, by dealing with it in bits and pieces on those other films, um, you know, even before we did some of those other films, we talked about one just on, uh, on the Buffalo, but we, we just kept saying, this is such a, it, it's such a portal to telling a story that's not this is a by it's like in our biography series yeah this is a biography of the american buffalo in in one respect but it's not just about the buffalo because it never was just about the buffalo mm -hmm. and what my friend gerard and other people made clear to us is that that if if you tell the story of the american buffalo you're also telling the story of native people particularly on the plains you're also telling the story that's even larger than that, which is a collision of two worldviews of how we interact with the the uh, natural world, which reached its most dramatic crescendo on the Great Plains in the latter part of the 19th century. And you're also just t talking about lots of different things, you know, the importance of, you know, what does the railroad mean? Mm -hmm. What does manifest what destiny mean? What does manifest yeah. destiny mean? You know what does conservation mean? Who are the people that 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 step forward in their for their own individual private reasons or do-it-yourself Buffalo Salvation projects? You know, you know, twenty twenty head here and twenty over here in New England of all places, and uh, and uh, some of them are doing it because uh, and on two reservations that, where they're being. Uh, preserved and, and grown for the more traditional reasons, but ranchers, Charlie Goodnight, the legendary cattleman in the Panhandle, Texas, you know, hated buffalo, and he really didn't like Indians much. And by the end of the film, you f find out that he's been raising, he starts raising buffalo, he becomes very attached to them, and he becomes very attached to providing buffalo to Indian tribes near him for their ceremonial reasons. And, you know, George Bird Grinnell, a great, who was a character in uh, our film on the national parks, plays a critical role in their salvation. And some very, uh, you know, a couple people who aren't particularly likable in uh, uh, modern times, rightfully so, William T. Hornaday, who mm -hmm. becomes uh, just... Uh, you know, a, a crusader for saving them from the commercial destruction, and who hates Indians and thinks that they're and and a lot of other uh, non-white people and believes in the pseudoscience of eugenics. Uh, 
but he still is a person who played a, a crucial crucial role. Yeah, you, can, you can't in, overlook in the, it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You can't yeah. you can't overlook either of them. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you, if we're talking about Buffalo, we can't just sort of say, well, but we're not going to talk about this other part. You know, as Ken mentioned, our films deal with human beings who are uh, their own amalgam of different impulses, uh, and you have to be honest. Uh, with your portrayal of it, and so with you know, you, without saying, well, we can't talk about him mm-hmm. because he had this deplorable belief that there was this hierarchy of genetically driven um, purity of of the human species. Um, at the same time, he was, you know, doing everything he could to to keep this magnificent beast from disappearing forever it's uh, you know um there's a good the the complexities of the people involved uh you explore a handful of them but there was a story in there that i hadn't that wasn't familiar with um so palo duro canyon um if, if 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 listeners if you're imagining the texas panhandle um there's a thing called the a landscape feature called the Llano Estacado, the staked plains and coming off of this bench are these like deeply incised canyons. Um, and the Comanche and others had long hunted these canyons. I had never heard this story that after the animals were mostly disappeared that, uh, I can't remember. You'll have to help me fill this in. Wasn't it? Yeah. The Quanta Parker and the yeah. Comanche yeah. went to Palo Duro Canyon from the like, reservation. And they're to... like, if there's one place we'll find them, it's there. Right. And they get there and it's being ranched by Charlie Goodnight. By Charlie Goodnight. And he says, You're not going to find any, but I know you're not going to believe me. Um, Go take a look. And then what do you tell him? Every two days, you can have a couple of my cows. You can kill. Every whatever so day, you can kill some number of my cows to feed on. This is the beginning. It's you and know. Please satisfy your curiosity that they're gone. We we really love the simplistic binary idea of villains, and Hornaday fits a villain because he starts off doing one thing, and he and he and he does an admirable thing, but he does it for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, it says a lot say, of horrible because, things along the way. But then and, you uh, have these other things that are the Charlie Goodnight stories in which you have a human being who's an Indian hater, an Indian fighter, and is is a buffalo hater and a buffalo killer. He wants to raise his cattle in Palo Duro Canyon. He's got the first ranch there, and his evolution ends up embracing, as Dayton said, not only the buffalo, on an accident, his wife's lonely and she wants to raise a few buffalo calves, and so they end up with a herd that's not insignificant in the story of all these isolated herds that need to, in some ways, if not coalesce, contribute to a coalescing in various places that will protect the buffalo from the pressures of real extinction. But he also then is shedding the animosity towards native people and embracing them and he and them he in a hugely important way and it's those stories that punctuate all of history regardless of subject matter that you are drawn to as easily as you do we have in our editing room a neon sign that says it's complicated there's not a filmmaker (laughs) there's not a filmmaker on earth that 
when the scene is working, you just want to just don't touch it. Don't touch it. But we always are finding out new and contradictory information about something undertow that threatens to sort of, um, derail what was effective about that particular scene. But we always will move towards that and lean into it because you end up realizing, as Dayton said, you know, that nobody, I mean, we always lament there are no heroes now, but her heroism is not about, the Greeks tell us, about perfection. It's about strengths and weaknesses. And so mm -hmm. you want to calibrate and calculate what those strengths are. You know, Achilles had his hubris and his heel to go along with all of his great strengths. So it's really not perfection. It's the negotiation between strengths and weaknesses and what happens in that. And so Hornaday remains an important person to tell. You don't wash him out. You don't cut him out of this. He's not disappeared or canceled. He's an important, really important person. But he represents a kind of heroism that is not you know, doesn't reach a Charlie Goodnight, you know, you cancel him for the early years and then all of a sudden embrace. So the idea of even cancellation in good history becomes kind of beside the point. You're going to try to include as much as you can and treat everybody with that kind of perspective that allows you to understand even the motivation of the hide hunters, even the motivation of this. So you're, 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 you're not excusing it. It isn't some big, you know, kumbaya moment. This, this is tragedy. This is violence. This is hatred. This is race animosity. This is generosity and love and purpose. There are people from all over the country who band together and we now have Buffalo not skinned in some, in some museum, as mm -hmm. Hornaday initially was doing, not on a damn nickel, but there's hundreds of thousands of them that are alive, and we can take our kids and our grandkids to see them, and that's one hell of a great story. I was heartened by the 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 bold choice to use the word buffalo <laughs> in, in the title, and uh, I'll I'll let Dayton address I, this. I, I, I had. I had dinner with Dayton last night and we were talking, I was talking about <laughs> a question I had asked of, well, I'll, I'll point this out. So there's a number of people, well, there's a couple of people that are in this, this new Ken Burns documentary, the American Buffalo who have appeared on this podcast before. So we've had Dan Flores on a couple of times. Michael Punk's been on a couple of times. Um, I recently interviewed Dan Flores about his new book, wild new world. And one of the questions I asked him was, there, uh, we were talking about, there are certain things that historians and writers, when they talk about them, they feel like they have to explain the evolution of the thought. Right. The peopling of the Americas. No one ever is comfortable saying, uh, here's what happened. They'll say, well, for a while we thought this. Then for a while we thought that. And currently we think this, and there's certain oh. subjects that every, that people have, like, they feel like I can't just say what the current thinking is. I have to say how we got to the current thinking. And we're talking about like when you, when you use the word, if you describe the animals, Buffalo, it usually comes with, you feel this need to go hear me out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And explain the whole thing. And just the, in the film, um they they spare all that 
Like it's not there. It just says scientists, whatever. And, you said scientists call it bison. Known to scientists today as, as bison, 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 right? Yeah. And that allows us to use it interchangeably yep. and not get into the whole into etymology the, of our argument because yeah. it is Buffalo, New York, not bison, New York. It's the buffalo nickel, not the bison nickel. It's now been changed from a bison buffalo reserve to Bill the Cody. buffalo. It's <laughs> buffalo bill. I mean, you've got all these yeah. examples. So what you're acknowledging, and though Dayton can, I can press a button. <laughs> That's on a great Dayton. point. I'm going to steal that from you. The bison nickel. Uh, I <laughs> mean, you, you you will you you can you can hear the whole dynamics of the argument, but it's quite simple. If that's what you're calling it, this is what we'll call it, and we will early on acknowledge that scientifically, it is it is bison bison. And if you want to get into the fact that there are buffalo in Africa and buffalo in Asia, and nothing's re and this is not really a buffalo, it doesn't matter. We say this is what the earliest settlers called it or a variety of things. There's lots of Native American names for it, dozens. And sometimes, you know, one tribe will have dozens of names for it, depending on its age and its size and its sex and its health and where it is and how much skin and, you know, how much fur it has and what fur is lost. So, you know, this is what we call it. And the rest becomes complicated semantics, which is designed to put people to sleep if you have to, in that meta way, sort of say... <laughs> So this is how we all have to think about it. And I'm tr trying to save Dayton from having to, to, to do what he, <laughs> what he does, which is, it, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, he a, said it's someone a, took him to task at a recent Q and A and he had to do it. He had and like, to do we it. We were right? going to talk for 10, we were going to talk for 20 minutes and 19 was his explanation of what it was. I just picture the guy raised his hand being like, but hold on a minute. Yeah, right. Exactly. You right. named it the wrong thing. You know? Right. So, and oh, you're, you're, maybe you didn't know this, yeah. but, <laughs> the, but they're actually bison. <laughs> yeah. You see, there are these other, and I want and so the I, last so thing you I want to do with that, Dayton yeah, is exactly. to do that. You know, it's like said, it's like well, Brer Rabbit. Please don't give me a lengthy <laughs> explanation of of. Please don't ask for a lengthy explanation of the bison buffalo controversy. Yeah. And then he but, he brought up another instant where or instance where he toyed with one of the one of the things, which is that Lewis right Lewis's death that, that Lewis killed himself or was murdered. And he explained to me the process of, do we get into it? How do we get into it? And eventually it's just, he killed himself. Right? How, mu how much of dinner did that discussion take up? <laughs> it was post-dinner, so it was... No, just like, do I really we, need to do this? I suppose I should well, do it. And I said, well, actually, the way we solved it, it was because I was uh, one of the interviewees on the Lewis and Clark film, is that I tell the story. And so I, I said... So we can have the narrator later say, well, there are some people who, who claim he was murdered and all that, but I'm the one that's saying it. The narrator's not, and just give them my address and my phone number, and I'd be happy to talk to it, and I'll be happy to, anybody wants to chide us for naming this the American buffalo instead of the American bison uh, and using it interchangeably with, with bison, um, 
to save time for this podcast. Yeah, and to avoid redundancy. <laughs> they can, they can, you, they can if, contact me as if, long as they, you know, they're, any they're given paying sentence, for the 20-minute phone call. Just think in, <laughs> in sentences that comprise paragraphs that in, comprise blocks of narration that are pages of talk that you can't just see buffalo, 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 or bison, bison, bison. So you're you're saying bison, and then buffalo, and then the animal, and then bison, oh, yeah. and then buffalo. So it just helps relieve the thing. But the point is... They're Buffalo, and that's the name of our film, and we're sticking with it, right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacovas is your stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. And Tacovas has first wear comfort, meaning you put them on, they feel great. Little or no break-in, period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, their direct-to-consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket. Just ask my buddy Chili, who's been slipping around in his Tacova boots, talking about how great he feels in them. He loves them. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable. They're very fashionable, and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go around Bozeman. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, 
consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. How did you guys... uh... This is, this is a version of asking, how do you find your subjects for your films? But I want to focus on one that I found just a, that I could watch all day and listen to all day um, because of just the articulation, the passion um, is George Horse Capture Jr. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, I'll let Dayton tell the story, but I think when I was trying to talk about what it might be like to seed the momentum the impetus of your own world views mm-hmm. to someone else's not just in some kind of gracious after you alphonse no after you gaston but in a real way it occurs naturally because george does not see junior does not see things the way we expect people to see things. Oh, yeah. And so what it's he... Disconcert- it's not, not disconcerting. It's disorienting almost. It is yeah. Yeah. disorienting in the most, um, for me, uh, emotional way. I have watched this film dozens and dozens of times. I have wept every time I get to his last remark, which we will not give away. Um, and I have been watching myself agitated, disconcerted, having being kind of elated that there might be another way to see this mm-hmm. grasshopper, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's like suddenly there's another way to figure out how to square the circle. And that makes me curious about it. So, you know, he is, you, you could listen to him about anything because he is going to come out out of it a way that just upends your own kind of whatever it might be. There's nothing wrong with wherever we come from is wherever we come from and what we bring is okay. But he, it's going to be nice to have him there as like, what do we call it now? A disruptor, mm-hmm. right? It just lit- but it, but in a real sense, in a spiritual way, it's like upending conception. Like Dayton used to have this rap. We'd been on the road with the national parks and he'd say, you know, People would look at a, a river and think, damn. Mm-hmm. They would look at a stand of timber and think, bored feet. They would look at a canyon and wonder what minerals could be extracted. But couldn't you, with a national park idea, let go of that and see things in a different way? So the seeds of that impulse are part of the 600 generations history of George Horsecapture Jr., of a of a small, tiny tribe in north central uh, Ma- Montana. Mm-hmm. And out of his wisdom is not an argument, not a fight, not a war, but the possibility that if I sit where you're seeing, you know, as my ancestor Robert Burns said, oh, would some power the gift to give us to see ourselves as others see us. George just suddenly goes, and there's just some new light 
that's 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 possible. He's the bee's knees to yeah. me. Mm-hmm. He, he, I met his father, George Horsecapture. Mm-hmm. He's George Horsecapture Jr., who was a very renowned um, anthropologist um, when we were working on the West and spent some time with him. Um, yeah, when I tried to find George Horsecapture Jr. Yeah. online, I read a lot about his father. Yeah. yeah. And so I knew about him, and then I learned um, from uh, friends that we have at American Prairie the nonprofit that's trying to um, reintroduce uh, buffalo and and restore part of the prairie in Montana, which is not too far from the Fort Belknap yeah. reservation, that uh, George Horsecapture Jr. was doing a program uh, at the reservation dealing with buffalo mm-hmm. and would sometimes come and talk to 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 them at American Prairie to, you know, they're their neighbors and they work together now with, you know, uh, American Prairie giving some of their buffalo for the Fort Belknap herd, but that, you know, but that he would come and talk to people that were visiting there, you know, about what it meant, what the buffalo meant and still mean um, to his, his people. And so I said, well, I, I had never met him, mm-hmm. but I, you know, this is part of our process. You know, you want to give things a chance, right? And so we obviously went to people like yourself and others, Dan Flores and other people who were, who had written books about it. And, uh, also, um, uh, uh, Dan O'Brien, who is a writer, but also has a Buffalo ranch, uh, in South Dakota, and Rosalind Lapierre, who's a Blackfeet Metis, but who's an ethnobotanist and historian. You know, Michelle Newhouse, uh, Nyhouse, who's a writer about extinctions and stuff. You know, you go through all the reading you do, and you say, oh, well, let's go talk to those people that might help us tell our story. And some of those that turn out to be really good, and some of them don't. But you also, we wanted to talk to descendants of Quanah Parker. Uh, we wanted, who's a character in our film, we wanted to, uh, we learned about Marsha Pablo, whose great-grandfather was uh, Michelle Pablo, who had an important herd on the uh, Flathead Reservation. And then, so, we th- I just said, well, let's, you know, spend two hours with George and just see what he's got to say. Mm-hmm. And interviewed him in Fort Benton, Montana, and, you know, Right from the get-go, you knew this guy was bringing something that was not necessarily narrative storytelling of you know the historical story, mm-hmm. but just a flat-out point of view. You know, he's got some incredible moments in the film, including the the final. But even well before that, you know, when we're talking about the technique of the buffalo jump before the this horse. This is his debut in the film. Mm-hmm. And and we have other people, you know, Rosalind LaPierre and Sarah Dant, who's a, a, a environmental historian, explaining how that worked, how a tribe, you know, would work communally to try to maneuver a herd and then get it moving toward what you couldn't see from the ground is that there's a cliff on the other side. And the buffalo jumps, pishkins as the Blackfeet would call them. Um, and they tell that story, and it just comes alive. And then George just comes on, 
in the in the so our in music, the moment day, our music in the is, is, day. is going uh, is pretty uh, you know it's, con- it's a stampeding music and it just sort of ends and resolves as they go over the cliff right. in your imagination and in a painting. Uh, yeah, and but then we, you're looking up on a live shot. But of, we from see the a bottom. live shot with quiet, and then you hear this voice come on. And he says, "You go to a buffalo jump, you know, these days and." If it quite, if people ain't you know ain't talking like magpies, so you think you're going to hear about the uh, sorrow of the buffalo that you can hear in a Native American way, the uh, sadness, the sorrow, the screams of the buffalo, but he takes you in exactly the opposite direction. Yeah, and he says, but you you know you get the quiet and you think about that, and they're going to eat. Mm-hmm. Now they're going to be able to eat, and that makes people happy. You know that that. My family, my tribe, we're gonna be, we're gonna have enough meat to last us, you know, weeks a month into the winter, and mm-hmm. that's a good thing. And you know, it's just, like, yeah. it's like, holy smokes, you yeah. know, it's just like, of course, you know, they it, they would celebrate. Yeah. You know, you just got, you know, uh, we don't get into it in the, uh, in the film, but in the uh, book, I mentioned that there were certain. Uh, among certain native uh, tribes, if you didn't get all of them that went over the cliff, because they wouldn't all necessarily die going up, and they had people at the bottom to finish them off, we say that. But part of the thought was you needed to do that because otherwise the survivors would go and tell and warn and warn them. We still about use that place. term today. It's called uh, when they're educated. Yes. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> you don't want to educate turkeys or whatever. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he uh, he has a line that really stuck with me, and he and he uses it so fluidly, and it's not rehearsed. But he's talking about his people, his tribe, or his collective people, Native Americans, and he says, um, "My people and their people." When he says their people, he's talking about the buffalo. And when I and the thing I wrote about your film and and, and I touch on being in the film and and I quote him and I wound up needing to when I quote him when I say their people, it's so disorienting, like I said, I needed to put in parentheses. Right. So because the reader would never understand. When he says their people, he means the animals. Right. But there's no parentheses but in it, his mind. No. <laughs> and that's the great thing about it. I kept him. writing and I'd write, I wrote it and I'd look at it and be like, no one's going to understand what he's talking about. Right. You know, but there are people like, but the George, buffalo. <laughs> but George is asking you to take the parentheses off yeah. and see things in an entirely new way in which that, um, that word then is part of a, of a, a reciprocal relationship mm-hmm. between all of creation and not just the dominant species and everybody else. Yeah. I couldn't make it, like, you You can't make it work right. in writing. <laughs> no, you can't. Without a parenthesis, <laughs> clarifying yeah. what what he's talking about by saying they're people. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's the thing uh, with uh, on the film. In film, when he's talking, and he'll say some things that, you know, grammatically, you know, are confusing or something like that, but there is no confusion confusion watching him say it right. it's it's mm-hmm. it's totally communicated yeah um the my winter ownership yep. the my cattle my land my this he's asking you to say you know there's a who's the this is the, a response to good night yeah, yeah this yeah. is this is this is the um 
you know, the early 19th century philosopher Prudhomme, I think, who said property is theft, and that was part of the developing revolutionary and all the stuff that leads to... Th but he has that not as an intellectual idea in opposition to anything. It's just like... What kind of theory is this? What is my mean? <laughs> what, is, what does that mean to be my? I mean, where does this come from? This does not compute in a way. And so he's, by virtue of his clarity and his certainty, you are then required to let go for a second of your own sort of momentum, which in this case is four or five generations, six generations old, as opposed to his, which is 600 generations old on this continent. And say, whoa, well, maybe he's got a point here, mm -hmm. right? And so I, I love being, uh, you know, not calcifying. <laughs> I love the fact that I, that it, that that he kind of wakes you up. He yeah. also has a great moment. Uh, speaking of the bison nickel, the buffalo nickel, um, in interaction with your uh, comments about that uh about their this animal that gets put on a on on a nickel on the other side of an indian head by the way but that uh the model for that was from uh, that black, black diamond black diamond that you, diamond. you you describe and that what it's, I, you know i went to the last known fate. i went to the nas the last known location of black diamond's head which had become an italian uh clothing boutique Oh my God! Yeah, and I went in and told the woman working there, um, "You know what used to be in here." <laughs> <laughs> but 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 as you as you point out, in the, so here's this here in 1913. Here's this symbol. On one side is a a, a, a portrait of a, a of a Native American. Is, is and that, an, side is that is an individual's a, portrait? Who is that? I think so, and I can't. I can't remember okay. his name. I, I, well, at least I know that there are theories of who it is. It may okay. not be known, uh, but definitely, um, Fraser said this. This one was Black Diamond. Black Diamond yeah. is is a and as you say, and so what we're left with this. What is it a symbol of? It's a you know it, it's a wonderful thing. Is that and and that to us is, comes near the end of the film is what is the buffalo a symbol of in American history? Is it a a symbol of plenty? Is it a symbol of destruction? You know uh, what is it? And then George comes on you know and just gives it the final thing. He says, "In my confusion," he says, was looking at thinking like he's looking at that nickel right at that moment. It just makes me, why did they put that buffalo on there? You know, what is it? Why is it that for some people that you want to kill the thing you love? Mm -hmm. This is it. Because and, and look, at, look, look, look what we have done. We are beginning now. It, this is 1913 to fetishize and to romanticize right. the native man and the buffalo. Something we have just spent the last century trying to exterminate mm -hmm. and now all of a sudden it's the symbol of us what two symbols represent the um, the newness of america particularly the west and the native american and the buffalo and what and so <laughs> we've we've done this to it to me when he says that do you have to kill the things you love you just go my god th that may be the story of mankind i mean there's a moment one of the episodes um of in the vietnam film the eighth, I think, of out of ten is something a marine said to us, 
that uh, we're just talking about warfare in general. And he goes, well, that's the history of the world, mm -hmm. meaning warfare. So we just called it the history of the world because this is what human beings do. Yeah. This is what we do. This is not the aspect that we like to say. We want to say, oh, no, we're the Mona Lisa and we're the Tower of Pisa and we're the, the this and the that. We're also this. It's what, yeah, I've, I've tried that. No, I've tried to find parallels. I mean, there are many parallels for that in, in minor forms. Like you can look at our most populous state, right? Their state symbol is the grizzly bear, yeah. of which they don't have any, right? So, right. uh, there are things like that, but but it's so. And one of the comments that that uh, one of the comments that I have in the film is how quickly the nostalgia yes began because you guys do a great job of uh, Buffalo Bill Cody yeah in the Wild West show um, where they are it, it, it's it, it, it's like a it's like he got on a train. I mean, it's like he got on a train from participating in the final slaughter to arrive on the East Coast to mythologize the thing he tried to the get passing. Rid of. But this is—I mean—but it was like it was like he—he he didn't even look different. No, no, no. he's still—he's still advertising the same shtick. Yeah. He's just now flipped the coin, right? And it's different. But look at that—we romanticized the revolution. We took the Civil War and made it not about race; it was brother coming together. You know, all of this sort of stuff. We call the Second World War the Good War. It's the worst war ever. Sixty million human lives were extinguished, and it's the good war to us, mm -hmm. right? So this is always happening in our in our purview. And, and I think what we've been dedicated to is to try to take this, the onus of a superficial treatment off it and just say, it is possible to tolerate complexity. It is possible to give and take away at the same time with an individual or a moment. It is possible to sit in contradiction. It's complicated, as the sign yeah. says in the editing. You, you said to me one day on the phone, um, uh, you just said, nothing is binary. <laughs> yeah, nothing's binary. Nothing is binary. And that's yeah. all we want to do. We want to make something red state or blue state, black or white, young or old, rich or poor, male or female, gay or straight, whatever it may be. We want to make sure that there's just an on off switch for it so that we know where we stand with everything. And everything is, will resist that kind of on off switch. Because in Charlie Goodnight, you have all of this complication in William T. Hornaday, all of this complication in Theodore Roosevelt, the yeah. great conservation pre uh, president who in fact subscribes to many of the abhorrent eugenics views of, of Hornaday and, and those that are uh, spouting them like Madison Grant are, are also doing magnificent things. And so, you know, Lincoln, as late as 1861, was thinking of colonizing black people to Mexico or South America or back to Africa. In 61, mm. that's when the guns open up at Fort Sumter, right? I mean, and yet he's the great emancipator, which he is. He's the visionary who saw, who wrote the Gettysburg Address, which is our 2.0 operating manual. Declaration, 1.0, oops. The guy who says all men are created equal owns hundreds of human beings. We will gloss that over. Don't pay no attention to that man behind the plantation. Um, so he says, no, we really do mean it. But it's complicated. 
Mm. It's really, really complicated. And I think we need to, as Americans, particularly today, rejoice in complication. And I think what I was trying to say before is that maybe as we got older, our chops get a little bit better and that we find a way to rejoice. Integrate it more. To rejoice in that complication. I was going to, can I say uh, in terms of these, you know, complications and other things, you do a great job helping us in, in talking about how the people like Roosevelt, avid hunters, George Bird Grinnell, an avid hunter, you know, informing the Boone and Crockett Club, you know, helped start a movement in which hunters were at the forefront of conservation. So you've got to, you can't just have all this market hunting. You can still have hunting, mm-hmm. but there, but it needs to be regulated and not just sort of wanton. Uh, and that's an important uh, part of it. And, and I, and Grinnell is a personal hero of mine in that respect. Uh, who also saw conservation differently than some of the others of his of his age, because he also had a, a a deep connection with native people, was actually interested in them as yeah, human beings yeah. and everything. But you take Roosevelt, who rushed west in 1883, because he'd heard that the bison were about to be gone forever, and so he. First thing he wants, he gets on a train and rushes out to what's now North Dakota. Wants Why? to get one. He wants to shoot one while mm-hmm. there's still a chance to do it, so he can hang a a, a trophy on his wall. In the book, he writes after he buys a ranch, also in that place, and keeps coming back for several summers, about hunting adventures of a rancher, a ranchman. He talks about the buffalo and said, "This is a this is a their disappearance is a great tragedy," but on the other hand. Not only, it, not only was it probably, not only was it necessary for the advance of what he called white civilization, uh, it was hard, probably a blessing that it needed to be done because of its impact on us, you know, controlling native people. So he he just just said in a book that he's written mm-hmm. that the elimination of the bison was. Good maybe it maybe a little bit sad, the disappearance but of it Indian. was but it yeah. was but it was a blessing and necessary. Who then at the then with Grinnell forms the Boone and Crockett Club? Who then with Grinnell helps save and, and enact regulations in Yellowstone to save that last remnant wild herd from being poached out of existence? Who then signs the the bill that creates with a you know executive order creating the first preserve for bison in um, in uh, on on the plains and also the one on the Flathead Reservation in Northwest Montana and as we say the greatest conservation president in our history without question but he's all of those things yeah and there's nothing wrong with saying it's all those things you can't just say if if your tilt is well he said this about their extermination he's done or opposite if he just said he's just you know um, you know, he, there's only glory to be talked about with him. He was who he was. He was a complete thing. <laughs> and, yeah. and we try to portray him uh, in that way. He also spent, can you imagine this? He went out to uh, to Oklahoma to the Comanche Reservation after he'd met, after, he'd, after Quanah Parker had appeared with some other native leaders in his inaugural parade uh, in um, 
1905. He then went out to hunt coyotes, and and uh, Quana invited him to come to his fairly elaborate house called the Star House on the reservation. And can you imagine the president of the United States going to a uh, Indian reservation, uh, spending the night on the porch, yeah, sleeping on, on, the porch on the porch, yeah, yeah. of of one of the Indian leaders, but then told him, you know, from what you've told me and everything, I think this is a good place for us to have the first uh, buffalo preserve. I mean, that's a journey. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think, I, I don't want to overstate it, I don't think Theodore Roosevelt's views of, you know, the pecking order of, of the races, as he would call them, changed that much in terms of his opinion of native people but you know he loved to hunt and he loved you know uh they're two old they were two warriors who were you know quanta parker had his own journey mm-hmm. oh yeah. no one hated texans more than he did they they abducted his mother and his little baby sister uh and and took them away from the comanches back to the white civilization because that's because they had been, yeah, they had been if listeners want to get a, I mean, it's, listeners will get a good a, sense know. of this from from the film, but also uh, I would recommend as well uh, Empire of the Summer Moon. Yeah, if yes. absolutely. Hear the story. But anyway, Charlie Goodnight was one of the Texas Rangers who abducted Cynthia Ann Parker from the Comanches to bring her back to the Texas yeah. settlements. So, Quana was uh, a renowned warrior, you know. Uh, in fighting particularly Texans, but also the U.S. military. But then when he finally decided the buffalo are gone, there's we have to, f- you know, forge a new path, uh, became, a, you know, a, a leader of trying to help his people make that adjustment without giving up his many of his traditional beliefs, including multiple wives and long hair and, and, and the use of, Peyote. Of peyote, but he became a good friend with, with uh, Charlie Goodnight, and gave him. And Goodnight helped Quana get the remains of his mother and baby sister brought back from Texas and buried near the Wichita Mountains, where they, you know, which mm. they had considered their I home. Known that, yeah. And in thanks for that, Quana gave Goodnight the lance, the Comanche lance that he had used to kill. Hide hunters at the Battle of Adobe Walls. Okay, so I mean, in my so that lance is now in my mind that not just a you know it's what is it a symbol of? Well, it's a symbol of resistance, right? It's a, a, a symbol of friendship, and and possibly some you know some redemption some yes some measure of redemption and reconciliation it's a it, it is something you know uh history of, its of own. the world it's it has yeah. its own blood memory yeah that's you know, right one thing you guys did um and dayton i recognize that this isn't one of the ones you wrote or produced but one of the you mentioned celebrating these personal evolutions and, and the complexities i thought one of the most beautiful things and in, in, in your films was at the end of the Vietnam War, uh, which does a very, very good telling of just the deep complexity of the war and what it did to America, what it did to Vietnam. But it ends on um, 
among it ends on the wall, the memorial, and narrows in on an individual who uh speaking of personal change, and an individual who initially refused. He was like, I was not gonna go look. He hated the idea of the wall. Yeah. It was in that school. It was very contentious that it was this black gash, that it was celebrating defeat, that it was the list of the dead. It was in no way responsible for honoring what had particularly gone on and uh, had resisted and was adamant about not going amongst a group of people that have already gone and had everything happen. And, and when he began to answer the question about this, he started off with the defiance. By the end of his sentence of story, he has gone to see a friend and he's, he breaks down on camera because he, the power of it and mm -hmm. the memory. And he would probably still say to you mentally, intellectually, I don't agree with it, it's this, but he was himself more than any of the other people proof of the power of that great work of art yeah. to transcend. I mean, Tolstoy said art is the transfer of emotion from one person to the other. Mm. We hope that our films do that, that we're emotional archaeologists, not just excavating dry dates and facts and events, but something other. What George, I was... what George Horse Capture can do. But at that moment, you take someone who is opposed and lead him in his own mind. He's just narrating what he did in some living room safely out of the thing to the monument and he loses it and it just tells you what the force of that thing is and how spectacular i mean second only to the lincoln memorial which is the greatest thing ever in our republic i was my family was gone i was between houses i was on the second floor of the lewis and clark hotel in bozeman montana looking <laughs> over the parking lot watching the end of that movie and i sat in my i thought something was wrong with me i sat in that room and wept, wept. Well, we wept we all like like to the point where I was beginning to be concerned about myself <laughs> at the end of the Vietnam War. We all we had you know we um, because we are addicted to this notion of binary, everything's good or bad. Mm -hmm. We we build up within us reservoirs of attention based on that false premise that it's all just black and white. So catharsis is the ability wherever it occurs, to let that release go. I know what it means. There's not a listener listening right now that doesn't know what it's like to just break down and cry. And there's really not an answer. And there is really what's, why is it this little thing? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I mean, I wasn't in Vietnam, you know, I, I didn't do that. I'm here in the Lewis and Clark, you know, but something opens up and it just, you just, it, it, it spills out. It's so healthy in the best sense mm. of the word to, to, to permit that. And you know, where the rap in Florentine films is that we kill people really well. <laughs> you know, I was so happy at the end of this film in the Buffalo, <laughs> we didn't kill anybody. We, we, we saved somebody, a person. I, I mean, we think the Buffalo is a biography, but we also permitted somebody like George horse capture to do something that for many of us, exactly the same thing happens. All of the tensions of trying to maintain the fraudulence of this binary yes-no thing, in which does not exist in the universe, you just get, you get full expression there. And George just lets me just let go of a whole bunch of baggage that I yeah. just perpetually carry, put down, think I'm not going to pick up again, and then find out I'm still carrying the same stuff. Do you feel that you have to do something on 
the war in Afghanistan? I need 25 years after an event to do it. I mean, but I don't, I think that I'd, I'd like to challenge that. Yeah. I don't think you do. Well, we'll see what happens. We've got stuff through the end of this decade. And after that, it may, it may in fact be, and it would not, it might be all the petroleum wars, you know, it might be Iraq, first Iraq and, and second Iraq, as well as Afghanistan and try to understand them in, in, in that sort of post-colonial mm-hmm. way and and in a, in a in a global sense and also in the deeply personal thing particularly with with uh afghanistan relating to uh 9-11 so it's a wonderful story and it's very very complicated and, oh and and deserves I, the, the, even the people that it's like you know for me to look at you know i was born the last year of active engagement in vietnam but i was raised around my buddy's dad's are vietnam vets yes but um I think that there are plenty of people who have lived lived through that twenty year war, yeah. who have really lost sight, yeah, of the evolution of of mission, the evolution of the thinking there, yeah, what it was in the first place, what it became, the withdrawal. I mean, God, you guys, it, it's, it's, it needs to be someone. It needs to be someone like your team to 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 do it. And I just don't know that you need to wait a ton of time. Yeah. Well, we always like to, you know. Philip Graham, who owned the Washington Post, said that journalism was the first rough draft of history, which is a wonderful phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you also realize that nobody turns in a rough draft, right? Yeah. So what we like is the passage of time and the perspective that will do. I'll give you a good, not so quick, but a pretty quick thing. If we'd done the Vietnam film 10 years after the fall of Saigon, mm-hmm. right, in 1985, America's in a bit of a recession. We're talking about the Pacific Rim, but we don't mean us. We mean Japan, which is ascendant. Vietnam would represent the symbol of our decline, the ball and chain that we would forever carry around with us. If I'd waited 20 years till 1995, we we're the sole superpower in the middle of what was then the greatest peacetime economic expansion in the history of our country. We had won the first Gulf War with one arm tied behind our back with a coalition of dozens and dozens of countries supporting us, the beacon, the city on the hill. Vietnam would have would be an important story to tell, but it wouldn't be representative of any decline. You go 30 years to 25, and we're in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and we're bogged down. And now people are making Vietnam references. So once again, you're going, well, maybe mm. Vietnam is more symbolic of that. So we, you know, it comes out in 2017. And so we are able to look from, you know, it's like the Bitterroot Mountains from a lot of different peaks and a lot of different valleys to see a better to triangulate better what actually took place. And so I, after Vietnam, I was thrilled to realize when we were working, not after it, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a map of the Yadrang Valley and play may this important Hal Moore story. And we're just doing this and we've got this kind of 3d map that we're threading through the Yadrang Valley on a graphic. Right. And I go, oh, I can do the battle of long Island. <laughs> right. Right, yeah. we're going back to the revolution, right? uh, yeah. and people are like, "What? What?" But now we're like years deep into it. So to me, and we're still, it's still contentious. The stuff we're arguing about in the editing room among scholars about this thing that happened, it will be when this comes out. It 
250 years ago mm -hmm. is just magnificent. So I'm not saying no to so that. So you I'm like just, somewhere between 30 and 250. <laughs> yeah, <somewhere laughs> well, yeah, as an American filmmaker, I mean, we are, you know, working on and Leonardo. Leonardo, so right. we're, two okay. we're two centuries before that. I mean, he's, we say in two different places, it'll have to be down to one in the Leonardo film. It would be another 450 years before anybody would be able to duplicate what he'd done, yeah. right? Or the, his theories of this had benefited from, I mean, he, he had some theories of gravity that Isaac Newton is still a century away, and Einstein is, you know, four centuries away, and Newton and Einstein have calculus. He does not, and he's got some stuff on gravity. He's a painter, mm. right? <laughs> he's a painter. And it's uh, at that point you're going, you know, oh my God. So we're, the perspective is, is, is pretty important to us just because, and I think it's one of the arguments and maybe we've said it of the Buffalo weight is to be able to be in the age we're in now with the kind of scholarship, including yours, that, that helps us understand and evolve the story that we were drawn to and said, boy, we need to do a film on just the Buffalo because it cut, touches all the corners as Dayton mm -hmm. says in the film back in the early nineties or even late eighties, right? We got to do that. But the fact that we've waited as long as we have, I mean, nothing changed except the inter Buffalo tribal council and stuff like that. And, you know, wolves released in Yellowstone and, you know, whatever is back has happened in the last but to be able to enjoy your and Dan Flores and, and, you know, so many other scholars that appear in the film, Michael Punk, Michael Punk, for sure. Um, you begin to realize that we've got a richer, more dynamic, less binary, mm -hmm. uh, story to handle. Well, whatever you, uh, whatever you guys make now and in the future, uh, I will watch it and I will be moved by it. I will think how I would have done parts different. <laughs> And um, and I think our audience is really going to get a lot out of uh, out of the American Buffalo. I think that um, you listeners, when, when you watch it, um, parts are going to speak to you. Parts are going to challenge you. It's healthy. It's good. You're going to probably, if you know the story well, you're going to have parts. Where you're like, well, yeah, what about <laughs> right? But that stuff's great, man. It's good for your brain. So um, exactly. Yeah, I hope I hope everybody watches it. And really want to thank you guys for coming on and giving us the time. It means thank a lot. you. Thank you. Know. you. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved 
via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. 